Genesis. So I'm going to be in Genesis, uh, starting with Genesis 1.1. Now, today is going to be a little different because Genesis it needs to be treated a little differently. Genesis is the foundation of the Bible. It's the first book, the very first thing that you dive into there. And so we have to start with this a little differently because we need to think of this more of a, more of a groundbreaking ceremony. So instead of jumping right in and building your foundation immediately, we have to start slowly, get into some of the ceremonial aspects. Again, much like a groundbreaking ceremony, we're not going very far. We're not going very fast into Genesis today. Right, we're going to take some of these things and start to build what's coming. This is the time where we take the important pictures and we see what we know about God, because how we deal with Genesis is going to reflect how we deal with everything else in the Bible. If I can't believe Genesis 1.1, what makes me think I can believe John 3.16? They have to go together. We can't just pick and choose out of the Bible what we want. It has to all be together. So this sermon is a little different. Instead of just walking through step by step, which I will do next week, I'm going to jump around a little bit. We're going to talk about what we can learn from just the first, really, four words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Just the title of my sermon is, How Big Is Your God? Don't answer that just yet, because it's a loaded question. All right? How big is your God? Because you see, you see there's something you have to understand. I, I need a big God. I need a God who's able to help me. No, no, no. Me, guys. I, me. I'm a huge mess. Every day of my life is a huge mess. And I need a God who's able to help me. And I'd imagine a lot of us in here can say the same thing. And so from these first four words, from the very beginning, in the beginning, God, can we find a God who's big enough to help me? Is God big enough? Is God strong enough? Is the God of the Bible able to do what he says he's doing and help me? So that's our thesis today. Our thesis today is what we believe about God from the very beginning is going to determine everything else about our relationship with God. So we have to ask ourselves, how big is our God? So right away, the first four words. In the beginning, God. Let's start with in the beginning. In the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of what? Now let's make this abundantly clear. This is not, again, this is not, one more time for emphasis, this is not the beginning of God. This is not the beginning of God. We'll talk about him in a second. Right? But God is already here. God's already existing. This is the beginning of everything else, of space, of matter, of time. So the beginning of space, up, down, left, right, north, south, everything that has capacity, space, from the smallest, tiniest, little microscopic atom to the biggest, most massive galaxy that's ever existed. In the beginning of those things, space. This is the beginning of space, of matter. Everything has mass, and it has particles, and it can interact with our five senses. And then we can see, and then we can touch, and then we can smell, and we can hear, and then we can taste. This is the beginning of matter, of all the stuff that consists of things. It's the beginning of that. And this is the beginning of time. The beginning of everything past, up to today, the present, and into the future. This is the beginning of that, of space, matter, and time. 
Now, because of that, because of the beginning of space, matter, and time, and God is already there, in the beginning, God, he's already there, he interacts with these things differently. He interacts with these things differently. God exists beyond space. He's bigger than space. That's why when I say, how big is our God, it's a loaded question. Because even the assumption of a bigness to God doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. He's bigger than that. He's infinite. He's bigger than that. We can't even define a bigness to God. Outside of space, we call this omnipresence. He is everywhere at all points in time. All of him, everywhere, all at once. Omnipresence, fully and completely. We can read this in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, 24. Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. We can see his omnipresence. He is everywhere. He's not big. He is infinite. He's not in all things. He's not in all things like, like the force from Star Wars or, or like what Buddhists will think where he's in a tree. No, no, no. That, that's, that's the wrong view of God. He's present everywhere. He's able to see everything at all points in time. He's aware of all things. And this, to believers, is a great blessing. It's a great blessing to be, for us. We can see in Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter where we go, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what situation we are in, he's with us. Cory Ten Boom, who found herself in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. Cory Ten Boom says it like this. She says, there is no pit so deep God's love is not deeper still. Because anywhere we go, he is there with us. He's omnipresent. We can't get away from him. Now, this is the beginning of matter. So God must exist beyond matter. He was there first. We call this spirit. We call this spirit. God doesn't have a physical form like we think he does. Now, he takes on a physical form with Jesus, but he doesn't have a physical form. And this is why it's so important, God's warnings against idols. Because nothing we create could ever look like God. There's no physical form there. God is spirit. Nothing that we could imagine can match the holiness, the glory that is God. Again, we can read this in the Bible. I'm not making stuff up. We can read this in the Bible. John 4, 24. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And he expresses amazing love. Amazing love by taking on a physical form. The physical form of Jesus. Becoming human. To become one of us. To become a created person. Because he didn't have to do that. He chose to do that. 
and helps us see that he's not disinterested. He's not disconnected from us. Again, we're not talking about the force from Star Wars. He cares about us. He built the world for us. And he becomes one of us to join us in trials and in temptations. And this is the beginning of time. Well, then God must exist beyond time. We call this his eternality. The fact that he has always been, always will be, and always is. He has no beginning. He has no end. And this, this is truly beyond our comprehension. Our entire world, everything we know, is based on things starting and things ending. Things start and things end. God does not have such limits. God has no beginning. God has no ending. It goes on forever. In fact, when I was in high school, I had a science teacher who stood up in front of the room and he said, here's my problem with creation. Poof, there's God. That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, he was wrong. There's no poof. God just is. He's existed. He's always been, always will be, always has been. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He exists forever. There's no poof with God. He was always there. God does not have such limits. And this is interesting because our worldview has to go from beginnings to ends. We are born, and eventually we will die. We build a house, and eventually that house will come down. So how could a finite man with my limited brain, come up with an infinite God. And quite frankly, I can't. It's impossible. It wouldn't have happened. It's proof, more proof, that there must be a God. He exists because he exists. He is because he has always been. He is because there has to be something beyond space, time, and matter. And when, in fact, when he tries to explain it himself in Exodus 3.14, once he tells Moses, he says, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you, the eternal one, the one who has always existed. Now we also need to realize that he is not disconnected from the present. Every moment in all of time is an eternal present for God. He can control the past, he can control the future, and he controls today. And he can do what he wants with today. He sees every moment at the same time. Again, this is kind of beyond our comprehension. How, do we, how does he do that? I don't really know. It's just, he's God. Okay, so he's before space, he's before matter, he's before time. And as we start to put these things together, we can see some other things. We can see some other attributes of God. If God is beyond space and time, he can see everything, everywhere, all at once, from any point in time, we call this omniscience. He knows everything. He knows everything. There's nothing we can do that would hide from God. He knows everything about everything at any point in time. In fact, 1 John 3.30, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. If he's beyond space and time, then he must be able to see and know everything. If God is beyond matter and space, then he can do 
anything he wants, anywhere he wants, at any point in time he wants. We call this sovereignty. He's unrestricted. He's not beholden to anyone. He has the right to do what he wants, when he wants, where he wants. And he doesn't owe me or you or anyone else an explanation. Anything he tells us is a gift that he's chosen to give us because he's not beholden to anyone. He is not under any authority. He is the authority, which is why Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 is able to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because he is God. And if he's beyond matter and he's beyond time, if he is the master of history, past, present, and future, we call this omnipotence. He can do anything. He not only knows everything, he has, the, he has the, the right to do everything. He can do anything. He has the power to do it. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. God has the ability, God has the knowledge, and God has the sovereignty, the right to do whatever he wants to do. That's God. And already, we refute or disagree with other religions. Already, there are other religions that would have problems with this. Materialism, atheism, who believe there is no God. All that we know, all that exists is the material world. Well, that can't be true. This stuff can't just happen. This stuff just doesn't exist for the sake of existing. It can't. There has to be something beyond space, matter, and time to have started space, matter, and time. There has to be something. The fact that space, matter, and time exist, the fact that we are here and able to sit here on this earth, the fact that the earth is here means there has to be something bigger than it to have started it. Right, that's a little philosophical, sorry. We also have disagreed with pantheism, that God is in everything. Again, like the Force from Star Wars, or like Buddhism, right? where God is in that tree, or God is in that bug, or God is in these things, and therefore everything is connected like that. That is not how it works, because God is before those things. He existed before them. He can't be in them. He is not a part of creation. He is the uncreated creator. He's not, a, he's not a part of the material world. He's the master, the ruler, and the creator of the material world. And we also must disagree with polytheism, where there's multiple gods. More than one can exist. This tends to come up in Hindus and Eastern philosophy, where they have multiple gods, and also Mormons. Mormons will believe that God the Father is a god, God the Son is a god, and the Holy Spirit is a god. They believe in three separate gods. That can't happen. There can only be one. There could only be one eternal, omniscient, omnipotent being. Because if there is more than one, then one must end where the other begins. They conflict with each other. There could only be one God. And we can see this in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You can also see this in Mark 12.29, Romans 3.30, Galatians 3.20, James 2.19, just to mention a few. There can only be one God. There can only be one eternal being. We'll talk about the Trinity at another point in time. All right? We'll talk about that next time.
because that's not a contradiction. It's just something we don't always understand. So my principle here, in the beginning, in the beginning is important because it lays the groundwork for who God is. Who God is. God has the power. God has the right. And God has the authority to do as he pleases. And so, what we have to take this as is when his word says something we don't like, when his word condemns homosexual behavior, when his word says that abortion is wrong, when his word says that wives submit to your husband, and we say we don't like those things, well, it doesn't really matter what you like because God has the right and the authority to tell you what is truth. So, how big is our God? Again, it's a loaded question. Even the question is flawed because we can't say how big an infinite thing is, an infinite person is. He is infinite. So the question has to be, how much can we trust him? How much can we trust him? If he's able to do everything, if he knows everything, well, do we trust him? Because that's what he asks us to do in his word, to trust him. And that brings us to the second part of the phrase. God. God. In the beginning, God. So a few things about God here. First of all, the name for God in the Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim. And the interesting part about it is it's plural in nature. So God is one. There can only be one, but already, right away, the first name of God is a plural noun. It's a plural noun. We already start to see the Trinity in there. This helps us explain it. Now, we could stand up here and draw diagrams and give examples and give all kinds of things. At the end of the day, it doesn't make sense on this side of heaven. There's always something flawed with these analogies. Not that they're bad, they're great teaching tools, that's fine. But God is one God who somehow exists in three parts. All simultaneously, all equal, all at the same time. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all God. It's not a contradiction. Excuse me. It's not a contradiction. It's not a problem of a lack of faith. Right? It's a mystery. It's a mystery that God has chosen not to reveal to us. Again, he has the right to do that. In fact, we can just look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of his law. It's simply something he has chosen not to reveal to us completely. Now, Elohim. Elohim is also interesting because it's the name God uses when he reveals his power. Specifically, specifically his power over creation. You see, incarnation, when Jesus took on human form, that's probably the most loving act that God chooses to do. That shows his true love for us, that he would become one of us, a created being. And the resurrection is probably the most important act of God that he chooses to do. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. The resurrection has to be the most important thing that has ever happened, the most important moment in history. But creation... Creation has to be the most awe-inspiring, the most unbelievable, because it only ever happened once. There's only one account of creation in the Bible. 
There have been other people raised from their dead, raised from the dead. Right? There are other instances of Jesus coming to earth before he became a man. He talked with Hagar at the well. Right? But creation, there's only one right here in Genesis 1. And we can see people's reactions to creation, to this power in the Bible. One of them is the Israelites standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they are sick of Moses. They're fed up with him. We don't want to talk to you anymore, Moses. We want to see God. Bring us God. Bring us God. Get out of the way, Moses. Right? And to be fair, I'd probably be doing the same thing. Who was this guy? Moses? He was an Egyptian. He's a murderer. Why am I listening to him? And God says, okay, fine. You want to see me? You know, clean yourself. Come close to the mountain. Come close. And what's God do? He shows up. Whoa! He lights that whole mountain on fire. Whoosh! Burning fire. I don't know if you guys remember, if you saw the pictures last year of when like those California mountains were on fire, that was freaky. That was, it was like a whole world on flame and, and there's cars driving past and people are crazy, right? Well, that's what the Israelites asked for. We want to see God. And then God shows up and it is scary. Because God has this control over nature that we don't understand. This is a pants-wetting fear that comes in. And it doesn't even have to be a mountain on fire. Remember, remember Jesus? He goes to Peter. And Peter's been trying to catch fish, hadn't caught fish all day. And, and, and Jesus is like, hey, just cast it on the other side. <laughs> okay, man. You know. So he goes and he casts it on the other side. And he pulls up a huge ton of fish. The boat is starting to sink. There's so many fish. And Peter's reaction is, hey, awesome, I'm rich. Peter's reaction is, I am on my face, I am on the ground, depart from me. Depart from me, I am a sinful man. Because it's scary, because he can do things that we cannot. In fact, things that we could not imagine. Things that are, are so beyond our comprehension. It's scary when he's able to show that power. We see that throughout the Bible. People want to see God. I talked about Job a few weeks ago. Job, Job just wants to turn, and then God shows up. And it's, never mind, I don't want to see God anymore. Never mind, I need someone between God and me. Specifically, I need Jesus Christ. His creation is the only, only miracle to have only happened once. It only happened once. And this is the only account of creation having happened. You see, God was already there. In the beginning, God. The Bible never gives an argument for God's existence. It never runs through a philosophical, here's why you should believe in God. It never seeks to convince a reader that God exists. Because you already know he does. The mere fact of creation is enough to reveal God. Romans 9, or, sorry, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. You cannot look up at the starry sky and say, eh, just a random chance. No, you can't. There's something in you that cries out, wow, this is amazing. There's got to be more than this. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There is no excuse. You know, we all know, everyone who claims that there is no God, they know there is a God. 
They've simply chosen to put something else there in place of him. And so, my question, what was God doing before creation? In the beginning, God is already there. So what, what God, what's God doing before all of this? Right? Well, he is in a perfect, loving fellowship with the Son and the Spirit. They're all there. They're all eternal. Right? And God is love, but love requires more than one. Again, we have to see his plurality here. If, if he just loves himself, we call that pride. And God condemns pride. So he's loving perfectly with the Son and the Spirit. And I'm going to use a word here, and it's for lack of a better word, because I can't think of another word to, to describe it. God is planning creation. Planning. And that's a poor word, because God already knows everything. God already knows what's going to happen. God already sees all of that. So I'm personifying God a little bit. Excuse me while I do that. Right? But that's just the only word I can think of. We don't understand how he did it, what he did it. We do see later on in Genesis that he has a conference with himself. And so it's very easy to say maybe he had others of those conferences. Right? But he, he must have been planning creation in some fashion. But we do need to understand that God here before creation... Before creation ever happened, God is already perfect. He is already perfect. He is already complete. He is already holy. He is already loving. He is already merciful. He is already just. He is already wise. He was already fully and totally and completely God. And I bring this up. Right? I bring this up because there are some modern thinkers who think that God creates us, looks down at us, and then somehow changes because of us. And that's simply not the case. There's no growing with God. Growth would imply that something needed to be changed. God didn't need to change. Growth would imply that God is somehow subject to time. God is not subject to time. He's already perfect. When the Bible says that God changes his mind, when the Bible says that, he's responding to what we have done, how we have changed. When God changes something, he's changing because the situation has changed. Specifically, he's changing because of prayer. He's changing his mind because we've repented. We've changed. And so God is able to act differently because we've become different. God is perfect, and he does not need to change. So, like I said, there are modern theologians who make the argument that God needs us. Or that somehow God changes because of us. And that cannot be further from the truth. Here's a harsh reality. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. And eventually he's going to prove that. Eventually we will die. And the earth is going to keep spinning. Because he doesn't need us. God doesn't learn from us. There's nothing we're giving to God that's making him better or wiser. God doesn't look at us and become different because of humanity. In fact, the Bible tells us later that that's couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, at the time of Noah, God looks down at humanity and says, humanity needs to be wiped out because they become so evil. We are deserving of God's wrath. And God does no reason to change that. In fact, I would argue 
When we understand this properly, when we understand that God doesn't change, when we understand that what we are deserving is wrath, it should lead to a better appreciation of his love for us. You see, God doesn't have to love us. He chooses to. God doesn't have to create us. He chose to. He knew what was going to happen. And still he chose to create us simply because he loves us. He does so simply because of his grace and his mercy. That's what we read in the Bible, of his grace and his mercy. Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. When we understand God's name, when we understand, we, when we recognize his relationship with us, we begin to see how much he loves us. We begin to see that he is a God that comes to us. Now we also start to disagree with other religions. Right, right away, within the first four words, we're disagreeing with other religions still. God must have multiple parts. You can't have a perfectly loving God who's only loving himself. We call that pride. Elohim is a plural noun. He chooses to reveal himself as a plurality. Well, Muslims deny that. They will say Jesus Christ is not God. And they believe in a singular, solo, monotheistic God to the exclusion of everything else. So do the Jehovah's Witnesses. They will claim that Jesus is not God. Monotheism to the point of denying a multi-part or trinitarian God is inconsistent with what God reveals about himself. And quite frankly, it denies the Godhead of Christ, which is the sticking point of Christianity. The first question we have to ask of a new convert is, who is Christ? And if the answer is not, he is God, then we have a problem. Christ is God. And so recognizing God before creation reveals a God who is consistent with himself. He has no reason to lie. He's already in control. He has no reason to change. He is already perfect. He is the authority, the creator, and the establisher of everything, which makes his word the ultimate authority. He says it, and it happens. And it's consistent that he would seek to save us from our sin. His love is consistent that he would come down in human form. It's consistent that he would live the perfect life because he is perfect. And it's consistent that he would die the death that I deserve so that I may have life because he loves me. Because he created me even though he didn't have to. And so, as I worked through this, I was trying to find a way to make this extremely practical, to bring this to today. All right? I love the fact that we can have a ceremonial one where we just start with one little shovel full and we take a bunch of pictures and we find out who God is. That's great. It's a ceremonial right, before we start building our foundation. But how can I bring this to make this meaningful for today? And luckily, I was, I was blessed enough. I shouldn't say the word luck. I apologize. My wife's going to yell at me later. Right? I was blessed enough that I got to go see Paul Washer speak. And if you haven't heard him, he's fantastic. I highly recommend inviting him on YouTube. Right? But he explained perfectly why all of this ceremony today is important. So I'm going to finish uh, by basically stealing a part of his sermon. And he was using Romans 3.23. 
Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we tend to be apathetic to this verse. We know this. Of course we all sin. We get it. What's the point? Let's move on. Because we become apathetic because we don't fully understand the problem with the sin. We don't fully understand the problem of sin unless we have a full understanding of God. You see, when we sin, we don't sin against the mayor of a small village, the governor of the state, or even the president of the United States. We sin against an all-powerful God who told the mountains to rise and they stood in obedience. Who told the ocean, you can only go so far and no further, and they stopped in reverence. Who told the planets to stay in their place, and they bowed in worship. And he comes and looks at us, and he says, come to me. And we tell him, no, I want it my way. That's the depths of our depravity. That's the problem with sin. That's the hopelessness of our condition. We place ourselves in direct opposition to God. An all-powerful, infinite God. And sin is a big deal. It is never a minor matter. And it lives in my heart. In fact, I want sin, the Bible tells me, I want sin more than I want God. And when we have a correct view of God, when we see the eternal God, we can start to have a correct view of my sin. So, in conclusion, we ask the question, how big is our God? Is he big enough that my sin is a big deal? Do we see him as the eternal one who controls history? Do we trust the God who knows all, who sees all, who rules over all? And do we trust him to know what is best for us? Because how we understand God right here, in the beginning, affects how we think of God everywhere else. The infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing God is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. We just have to trust him. One way we show our trust to him is through the act of communion. 